Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our mission is to bring actionable insights and inspirational examples of how to tap deeper into your potential and ignite the flame within you to truly create a remarkable life on your terms. I don't have any scientific evidence to back this up, but I've got a lot of confidence that the number one New Year's resolution or goal that people claim is related to health, wellness, eating better and feeling better. I mean, isn't that what we ultimately all want anyway? But with the pace of our modern world, the rise of stress and uncertainty and the confusion of what is quote unquote good for you or bad for you, it's really hard to know how to properly and effectively follow an approach that produces results. Sometimes it's not just about knowing what you should do, but it's also about what you shouldn't. And more accurately within that, sometimes you need to unlearn what you think is the right way. You need to dispel some myths and update your knowledge of what is true. And so I'm excited to bring to you a very special guest today in Dr. Tim Spector. Not only is Tim deeply trained in medical science, he's also a prolific writer with several popular science books, best-selling consumer books, and a regular blog focusing on genetics, epigenetics, and most recently, microbiome and diet. If there's one thing that unites all of Tim's work, it would be the truth. Prepare to challenge some of your beliefs, and with Tim's help, you'll be guided to unlearn and relearn how to live with optimal health and vitality. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Dr. Tim Spector. Tim is the Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London, Director of the Twins UK study, and is in the top 1% of scientists cited globally. He's a multi-award winning expert in personalized medicine, food policy, and the gut microbiome, and the author of four books, including the best-selling The Diet Myth. His latest book is titled Spoon-Fed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food Is Wrong, explains why diet may be the most essential medicine we all possess, but so little scientific evidence exists for many of our most deeply held ideas about food. Tim, this is a conversation I've been chomping at the bit to have. I'd love to dive right in. Why this book and why now? I first wrote The Diet Myth, which is all about explaining how the gut microbes uh, could explain about many of the things we've got wrong in our in our diet choices. And the, the spoon-fed really felt followed on from that as, as it became increasingly clear that a lot of the science that we'd been told uh, was just plain wrong and that we'd been manipulated by the food industry uh, into this, uh, this position, partly abetted because nutrition science was so weak in terms of not getting funding, not getting the best people, you know, not uh, being a trendy subject at all and being ignored by medics, uh, plus the huge influence of the food companies, which, you know, now have budgets bigger than most countries. So yes. it, was, it was this, but really, as, as I was researching, and I was just finding out more and more things that upset me uh, and started saying, hey, you know, if I've got it wrong and I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be a guy who's, working in this field not and i've made all these mistakes because i believe this stuff what about everyone else you know and, and so the angrier i got the more i wanted to bring it out in a in a in a popular format that would um, uh you know would work with a number of people so that's that's where how it all came about so it was and that also coincided with this whole idea of um uh personalized personalizing nutrition and personalizing health and I think that's the um, that's the key to it. And suddenly I realized that this one size fits all advice we've been given is is also plain wrong. So yes. they're the two main themes of the book, really, this individualizing our advice and and also the um, uh, 
these these individual myths about how we've been misled for so long and, and why they're wrong. Yeah, I think I mean, when I read the introduction to your book, I felt like you were putting words to my own life story as well. The the messages and the the beliefs that we're we we adopt as a as a kid, sometimes by our mom, sometimes by the culture at the time. It, it seems to me if we just started with a bit of a bit of a bit of a, a brief history of how we got here. It seems to me a lot of things happened post-World War II with government influence and understanding food production or developing food production in a way that maybe had good intentions to begin with, but it's kind of morphed in a way that, that there are some big question marks that, that people like yourselves are really diving into and raising because they're really important. And one of the things that stood out for me was, I love that you broke it down into the three big obstacles. And I'd love just to spend a bit of time exploring this. You, you talk about bad science and misunderstanding of results and the, how the food industry operates. Can you just expand a little bit on those and uh, just give some context to listeners as to what's what's really going on to enlighten them for you know how, and then we'll then we'll turn the conversation to what do they do about this? Yeah, well, there's so many examples; it's hard to know uh, which ones to give. But um, the the three, uh, just elaborating on the the three points you you picked up on. So bad science is really the fact that for the last 30 years we've been relying on studies that are usually involved about 10 people yes and um facts like you know we should be grazing not gorging uh, was based on you know that similar number of people in a study about 25 years ago and since then yeah we've we, you know everyone everyone who knows a little bit about nutrition oh yeah i know that you know uh, that's good for our metabolism isn't it and and gorging is bad and it turns out that no one ever repeated those experiments with large numbers or looked at the individual variability between people. So um, you've got that, then you've got um, the, uh, obviously the food industry come in and um, help interpret that data for us in a way that makes them able to sell products. So they would then take that idea of, yes, eating more regularly. So rather than eating, traditionally humans have eaten about two meals a day for most of their history. Suddenly, uh, you know, in, uh, in the West, particularly US and Canada, eating six meals a day is the norm uh, with these snacking episodes and being told that that's the healthy way obviously feeds the food industry's profits and they come around and, and people feel better because on the, on the, whatever the snack is, it's got healthy snack, um, even if, the fact of snacking is not itself healthy. Yes. Uh, and so um, they, they're able to feed off the poor science and increase it and, and keep repeating those messages that were wrong in the first place. And, and in a way, making sure that no one really bothers to try and actually retest the science. And then, then of course, you've got the third bit is this idea of uh, humans love to uh, simplify things we love a simple message so we're all suckers for the simple message and you only got to look at the diet world and uh the nutrition world as well to say you know everybody uh you know blames one thing if you can change one thing in your life one thing in your diet you know eliminate this do this eat this mineral have that supplement you can change your life and it's complete nonsense and and yet um you know it's this obsession originally with carbs or um, sugar, and then it's got to be evil fat, and then it's gluten, and then it's what you know, whatever it is. 
um, that that obsession of simplifying an incredibly complex subject into something so trivial, um, again, uh, helps the food industry sell us more rubbish because yes, they can yes. then reformulate and say, okay, this food has none of the things that you don't like, uh, and you don't care about all the other shit that it's got in it that's killing you, but that's the way it is. So in a way that you put those three things together, it's quite easy now in retrospect to see how we've all been fooled so, so long about so many things, why we've got it all so wrong. And it's important to look at that so we don't keep repeating uh, these, these old mistakes and actually grasp the nutrition is actually, well, incredibly complex and it needs modern technology, modern science, modern computing um, and modern ideas if it's going to move forward. And we have to sort of break the mold of the old stuff and stop this idea of, you know, nutrition is all about calories, fats, carbs and protein and nothing else matters, you know, and uh, that, that's really, I think, the essence of this. And there's plenty of examples in the book. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things that um, um, really struck me when you talk about the food industry is that the 10 companies, the 10 major food companies, the Nestle's, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and, and some of the others, those 10 control 80% of the food that's, that goes off the shelves in stores all around the world. 10 companies control 80%. And it made me wonder, Tim, based on your work and your science and your real understanding of what happens, if you could sit in the boardroom, around the boardroom table with the, the leaders of those 10 companies, what would you love to ask them or inquire to, um, to really get them to see the impact of what they're having? Well, I guess I, I challenge them uh, because in the same way that I think we, we challenge cigarette companies, uh, that, uh, you know, they, the boards are there to make money for their um, shareholders, okay? And they've been doing a, an extremely effective job for the last 30 years. They've got richer and richer and food companies are now, you know, more powerful than pharmaceutical companies. You know, it was unheard, you wouldn't have believed that um, in the 1970s. So I'd be saying to them, how can you, you know, continue to make money for your shareholders, but actually stop killing people and stop making them fat with your products? Yes. You know, that's, that's what I would say to these guys. And, you know, come up, with ways and, and work in a meaningful way, rather than just reformulating um, ultra processed food. You know, how, how can you guys survive in a modern world where um, some countries, you know, some faster than others are gonna be changing this model and be wanting foods that are A, good for the environment, uh, B, not harmful to health uh, in a way that uh, is still affordable. So I think, you know, in a way, you know, I, I'm somewhat sympathetic to the companies because they're doing their job and no one is currently, uh, no one in government is saying that ultra processed food at the moment is like cigarettes. Um, people like you and I are talking about it, but, you know, we've only just started this taxation of, of you know, sugary beverages and and there are a few South American countries who have taken, starting to take on the, uh, 
these global companies, but they're pretty small, but it's going to get bigger. So I'd be looking to them to say, how can they, you know, how, what can they do to actually start not just thinking about selling people stuff that's tasty and they eat more of it and they get fatter and it's cheap, but how can they start uh, changing their products to be less harmful and, and more healthy uh, and good for the planet? And that would be my main challenge to these guys, uh, you know, because it's always better to see if you can work with some of them. Um, because you know they're not dumb; they're packed with really good scientists who are constantly trying to uh, make things healthy and cheap and uh, uh, and profitable. Yes, uh, if they can, they don't want deliberately to harm us. Um, so I think, uh, but at the same time, they've got this slight, like the cigarette companies, they quite like people to be addicted to their products, so they keep buying them. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree. This is a, there seems to be like we're entering a, a phase of the 21st century where there's a, a real need for a different kind of food innovation with these companies. And, you know, in the past, it may have been innovation in terms of what can we make taste good that's really cheap that lasts a long time, uh, regardless of what goes in there per se. Now it's like, well, how do we really build the sustainability and the health? And they have absolutely have a, a big responsibility. You talked about ultra processed food there. And that was in your book. And maybe, maybe there's something that just uh, flown under my radar, but that, that, that categorization from, from the Nova categorization, something I wasn't familiar with. You certainly hear a lot in our culture of avoid processed foods, but as it describes, it, kind of everything is processed to a certain extent. It's really the ultra processed where it's the chemical laboratory developed food um, that we really need to avoid. Is that a is that a term that is gaining gaining popularity or gaining kind of cultural reference, or is that more of an insider term that is being being banted around? I think no. Uh, ultra processed food or UPF, I think, is is gaining ground in the nutrition sphere and people who talk about it. Uh, and so I think it is replacing the meaningless term processed food. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's important that. Uh, people like us do make that distinction because uh, in a way the food companies will use the fact, oh, well, if you don't like processed food, you don't like artisan cheese, you know? Um, uh, therefore, you know, it's not all processed food is bad. And so that destroys the argument. So we're talking, you know, it is a continuum and man will continue to uh, add ingredients together to make some new food. We can't just all be fruitarians. Yes, so, yes, um, yes. So, you know, uh, and historically, we've always done some fermenting and other uh, other things that are processing. So there's nothing bad with processing, and I think that's why the uh, you know the South American approaches to try and define um, ultra processed foods as things that a, a you know are not using the primary ingredients, if you like, they're mixtures of things that don't resemble food in any way. Uh, each one of them is a a byproduct of, of something else that are just put together in a chemical lab, really. And, yes. uh, but it's not a perfect definition. I think we're still struggling with what to use. You know, um, you know, some people like myself might prefer using more than 10 ingredients on a packet just to tell the consumer if it's got more than 10 ingredients, it's highly unlikely, you know, it's very likely to be ultra processed uh, because you, 
you're not going to get 10 natural ingredients that, that, that look like they actually came from the earth and you recognize them. Yeah. Uh, they will be composites. And, you know, the difference between corn and cornflakes, it's, you know, they have the same name and they, uh, the packet has pictures of corn on it, but actually, you know, the actual ingredients are so remote that yes. they pass as ultra processed food. Yes, yes. Well, I'd love to dive into some of the myths that you debunk in your book. And I suppose, you know, you know, at the, the time that people are listening to this, it's still early in the new year. And a lot of people, you know, they're doing the classic New Year's resolutions and setting some out, you know, goals for the year. A lot of people will have health in there in some, in some aspect. So let's really set a foundation here for what people maybe need to really understand and what do they, what do they, they can throw away as an old paradigm. And I know one of the core ones that you talk about is that, you know, the whole diet industry is built on the core idea of calories in calories out, but clearly we're not, we're not identical car. We're not all ident identical machines. So can you just talk about the, what's wrong with that paradigm and, and what your, what would you suggest people look at differently? Yeah. So the calories are a really good one because it's been with us for you know over a hundred years now. All our food is measured that way, and the first thing to realize is that it's a it's a wildly over hyped measure of of food and how, what it's going to do to you um, for various reasons, including the fact we can't measure it properly. Food labeling is very inaccurate, and it is totally wrong to say that you know a calorie is a calorie. If you measure equal calories uh, from, uh, you know, fats and carbs, it's going to have exactly the same effect on you. So once once you realize that's not true and it's, we've been, it's been disproven in many uh, experiments, the point of using it becomes obvious only in it's disguising what's actually in the food. So it's used as a, a camouflage for why companies are stuck on labels to say, well, you don't care about the quality because you're only looking one thing when you go into a supermarket, it's calorie counts. Or in a restaurant, you don't care what else is in it, it's just as long as it's low cal, um, you're happy. So even if it's got 10 other ingredients because it's low cal uh, that are artificial. So that's my, but the, the fundamental idea is just so flawed that um, by counting what goes in, uh, you can then either regulate what comes out or you can then control your weight. And so firstly, no calorie controlled diets have ever been shown to work long term. Uh, the body resets itself if you just, you know, say I'm going to go on a really low calorie diet, your body will reset and just reduce the amount of your outputs you're, you're, you're using. So the other thing is that you give uh, the same people identical meals uh, they'll respond differently. So we'll probably cover this later, but in the PREDICT studies we did with Zoe, the, uh, we saw some people had sugar dips when we gave them a muffin. And one in four people had a sugar dip with the muffin uh, and the others didn't. People with a sugar dip ended up being hungrier uh, and eating more at their next meal. So you think that's an identical calorie for everybody, it's working differently. So. The idea you can rely on it as, as a useful measure really has to be completely out the window. So that's, that's my, I mean, there's so many objections to the calorie, uh, but it's, 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 it's those ones. It's, it, a, it isn't equal for all people. 
Uh, some people might get more or less uh, energy from fats or carbs of equal calories, and people use it differently. And it, it's just a most the worst way of assessing food that you can imagine. So, you know, and, and, and again, as part of this trilogy, um, the food companies love it because they can stick a healthy label on it and make poor quality food seem healthy. So yeah, exactly, which is which is kind of where I was leading to because one of the things that I I, um, I don't know if pride is the right word, but it's certainly something I've taken seriously is when I when I do my grocery shopping, as I do look at the label, certainly the ingredients, what's in there and you know, relatively how much whatever I might be interested in carbs or fat or sugar, what, what's in there just so I can be aware. But so I've um, I've kind of, uh, bought into the belief that I'm smart. I'm, I'm using intelligence by looking at that. But but you're saying that uh, there's maybe some myths behind that, or maybe there's some misinformation on there. So, so enlighten us on that front. Yeah. So the, I mean, the food label is is very simplistic at the moment, and most people, I think only half the people actually understand a food label anyway. So, um, the other half just see the big tick signs or you know smiley faces on it, and uh, you know, uh, will buy according to that. But, the people that do read the label only a fraction really understand you know the calories and fat and they're, but also they're deliberately fooling you anyway because they always make it seem like there's less <laughs> of anything bad in there than there should be or it's per 100 grams or you know regardless of the size they actually see what's you have to do the maths always to work out what's actually going on but it, it dumbs it all down because you know Part of this is also coming back to uh, the indoctrination that you know we can eat healthily if we eat low fat, for example. So people look at the fat content uh, very often as after the calories, they look at the fat content. And this is all based on the premise that if it's low fat, it's good for you. But no study in the world has ever shown that if you low fat diets actually help anybody improve their health. Right. So. Um, so that is really, and that is becoming more mainstream, the idea that uh, total fats and uh, most, but not all uh, nutritionists agree that saturated fats are probably not the problem we thought they were because it's all about the context of the food. So if you read, the, if you read a label of one of the healthiest foods you've got, which would be like olive oil, you'd be put off by the label because it would say, you've got 13% saturated fat. And you say, I'm not, I'm not having that. Yes. Actually, all the epidemiology says that's one of the healthiest uh, things you can put on your food. And so that, that's why it's, we're moving away from this simplistic idea of food labels to uh, understanding more about the context of the whole food, because it depends what else is in that food that makes it healthy or not, not the individual uh, particular items that you would focus on ignoring uh, you know the 10 other chemicals that the company's added to make it low fat uh, which we know will make you hungrier and uh, you know have metabolic problems etc or affect your gut microbes so that's that's where I think we're at and our studies of thousands of people have shown that if you give people identical meals or you tell them to have standard meals what would go in the food label only explains a tiny fraction of say their blood peaks after eating it so 
um, you get a sugar peak and you get a fat peak and um, you get inflammation levels. If you break that down into the, the, the calories, the, the fats, the sugars, as you're doing when you read the label, that only explains less than a third of the individual response to that food. So mm. it's massively overrated uh, in terms of the way we assess food. And I think that's what people need to bear in mind. That it's, you need to understand the whole food process, not just be fooled and be given one number and think you, you can understand it by that number. Yeah, and I think the other thing you touched on as well there is that what we're really trying to do here is, is help you know um, break people out of maybe their trance of, of reading one, one element and making a conclusion from that because a lot of the, not only just the food label of the ingredients, but the, the marketing on the packages of course, you know, probably breakfast cereals is the, would be the classic example, but the marketing of saying it's fortified with X and Y, but it might be in such small quantities that it really doesn't have an impact for you. Or it might be some other elements that, you know, they don't talk about the, the 10 bad things. It's the one good thing they try to show, but the 10 bad things override that. So people really do need to, um, I, I don't know, slow down a little bit or just be a bit, a bit more attentive as to what they're, what they're putting in their body and, and recognizing that what's on the package um, may not be the, the whole story that they that they really need to be paying attention to. Yeah, I think it needs people just need to realize how little we know about food and nutrition, uh, yeah. including the experts, you know, and um, uh, and you know have a bit of humility there and say, okay, well, what I do know is that if I, you know every every expert agrees that eating more plants, fruits, and vegetables is good, and we did a survey of uh, thirteen top professors in the U.S on nutrition and um, they all agreed plants, fruit, you know, olive oil, uh, berries, uh, all really good for you, no, no disagreement there. And on the other end, you know, eating fried chicken and bowls of, uh, you know, sugar and, and, and rice uh, and fries, not good for you. Um, in the middle, you know, all kinds of uncertainty. So no agreement on um, dairy products, low fat products, um, meat products, uh, you know, all that stuff in the, the gray zone, really, there is no real uh, consensus from the top experts at the moment. So things are shifting, because you'd think someone like me was a bit of an outsider, which I think I probably was, you know, five years ago, but it's, it is really changing fast. So Obviously, by the time the government's act, you've got labels and the food companies have done it. That's all representing work done 10, 20 years ago. Uh, right. and, and so, you know, and some of the stuff that you see on food labels, like contains zinc, which is good for your immune system, right? You've, a lot of that in COVID at the moment, right? You know, that data is about 30 years old. And it's complete rubbish. Mm. But because they, around the world, got, you know, some license to, as a claim, to say that zinc was good for your immune system, it, 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 they can put it around the world on every food packet and they just drop a few bits of zinc in there that are meaningless amount yeah, just yeah. so they can play, you know, this is an immune busting yogurt or whatever it is that uh, you're eating. Yeah, the companies definitely run wild with one, one fact and, and over embellish it. And fortunately, as you very rightly, very clearly stated and explained in the book that the marketing budgets that these companies have become our educator. They become our teacher because that's the message that we're seeing all the time versus the, the truth in, in books like yours. And so, okay, so we, we've dissected that, you know, the, we can't 
necessarily buy into the messaging that we're getting on the store with the food. And so the next area where people might go to say, well, if my food is, I don't know, compromised a little bit, or maybe not giving me all what I need to really be healthy, then I'll turn to supplements. And then uh, and I'm a, I have, I take a lot of supplements as well, but then you, uh, you, you smack me upside the head by saying that um, in your book that virtually no vitamin or mineral supplement has, has been shown to have any benefit in, in proper randomized trials in typical people um, and maybe even causing some harm. So lay down the law for us here, set us straight on what we, what we should know about supplements. And I, I got some follow-up questions for that as well. Well, this is the topic that I get most abuse about because um, supplements are like a religion. To, to many people. It's like saying there is no God, you know, it's, um, people get very upset because, you know, it's been their prop for many people and they love to believe it. So um, I'm, I'm get, that's my disclaimer. So um, <laughs> I get death threats from this um, <laughs> uh, uh, bit on your head, but the, um, what, yeah. So, you know, I studied vitamins uh, a lot in the last 20, you know, 30 years of my, my career. And there are often associations between low levels of these vitamins and diseases. So there's at least 300 diseases, for example, that have been linked to uh, things like deficiency in vitamin D, uh, which is a good example. Um, now, obviously, what we're seeing there is is not is correlation, not causation. So uh, it turns out that uh, low levels of vitamins happen in people who are not well, who are sick, who've got immune problems, for whatever reason. And a lot of that is because they might have had that disease for a long time, and it seems to affect uh, blood levels of things. So in a way, vitamins are perhaps often a, a marker of health. Uh, but not necessarily a causal for health. So when you, you take these data and you take vitamin D, where there's hundreds of studies showing associations with disease, and you then do a randomized trial, you know, and you give placebo and, and, and real to, uh, to hundreds or thousands of people, uh, you don't even show a difference in fracture rates um, uh, or in um, weakness in the elderly where you would absolutely expect to see it. So what it's showing is that there's something quite different about these, these levels in the body and giving a chemical supplement uh, that you expect to have the same effect as what's going on in the body. So it's not to say that vitamin D has no role in the body. Uh, it's just that when you give it by chemical means uh, in a way that necessarily we weren't uh, evolved to use, it, it's quite likely it doesn't work in the same way and could be harmful. Mm. And I think this is what I've slowly come to, to terms with, having published 30 papers on vitamin D, thinking it was great. I've obviously realized I was mistaken and um, uh, come full circle. And I'm not ruling out anything 100%. I'm just saying when there's a randomized controlled trial, Shame doesn't work. You've got to realize, well, if it does work, it's got a pretty tiny effect um, compared to placebo. But that, that's where we are. So I think people need to realize the difference between getting vitamin D from sunshine, for example, yes, or from possibly eating oily fish or uh, mushrooms being left in the sunshine, um, which is the natural way to get it, versus 
taking a chemical once a day or once a week, which might produce levels that your body may not be able to process the same way, because again, it's this reductionist idea that we think we understand things because that's the one thing we measure. And you know, we, we fixate on these 13 vitamins uh, because they've got the name vitamin and we can measure them and someone's produced it. I mean, and vitamin D isn't even a vitamin, it's, a, it's, it's more of a steroid. Mm. Well, and on that note, um, you know, you mentioned earlier about zinc and immune system, and certainly we're entering the, the winter season for those in the northern hemisphere. And, um, you know, there's lots of conversation, lots of talk in the media and certainly in the shops about get your vitamin C. And so a couple of questions on that is the same kind of what's your what's your view on vitamin C and the supplements? And I guess I'll ask the second part of the question is, my understanding is when you go into your your, your normal high street shop, whether it's a Boots or a Tesco or North America, whatever your grocery store or, or pharmacy is, you know, the big brands you see, they probably see Jameson brand is a big one with all of theirs. And what's really in the bottle? Are we really getting the dose that we, that we are saying on the label? What, what's your view on that? Well, the studies, um, I don't know about vitamin C, but in general, uh, most of our vitamins are made in large factories in China uh, where we have very little control, as little, quality control on, on what's going on. And because their vitamins are not medicines, um, they're not properly controlled. So the studies that have been, I think have been on omega-3, um, showing that 90% didn't contain the dose or the, uh, the product as, as specified on the, on the bottle. So wow. I think it's, uh, you know, we don't really know what we're taking. Um, you know, I don't think it most probably contains roughly what it is, but you have to be very careful about the quality of what you're ingesting, whether you're having something else instead. Um, and so uh, the studies that have been have been very alarming. And it is amazing that uh, our governments don't um, actually routinely screen any of these products, mm. given that 50% of you know, Americans and Canadians actually do take these regularly. Uh, it, it's a huge factor. And if, if they are potentially harmful because they've got impurities in them or they've got other chemicals they're using as, as agents, you know, and they don't have any benefit therapeutically, then, you know, that's a massive public health problem that ought to be a bit more uh, advertised. So, uh, but again, you know, uh, the food world loves vitamins uh, and the, the vitamin supplement industry is, is becoming as big as the pharmaceutical industry. So I, when I get told off, people say, oh, I'm in the pay of pharmaceuticals because they see the vitamin companies as the small guys. You know, they're the, they're the it's interesting, they're the hippies. Yes, uh, yes. Which, you know, they might've been 40, 50 years ago, but now, you know, again, it's like the food industry. There's like 10 companies that control 75% of all vitamins in the world. And yes. they're made in these massive factories in Asia. And uh, highly, highly synthetic chemical uh, ways of doing it. It's, you know, there isn't someone, you know, uh, chopping up lemons to give you your vitamin C. It's <laughs> they're made totally synthetically. So um, I think we just be we we ought to realize that you know they're like a dodgy pharmaceutical, and they really should be proving that they do work as well as you know the natural plant they come from. Other so my view is, you know, vitamins are important, but 
we've evolved to use them from the actual food, not as this isolated chemical that might have opposite effects. And that's what we think is happening in many of these. And um, yeah. uh, vitamin C, you know, they do these meta-analysis of trials. And um, as I told you about uh, vitamin D, uh, doesn't have any effect on fracture and, and uh, falls and actually makes them worse in high doses. But um, it does have a very slight effect, about 11% benefit on respiratory infections, possibly, which is very small, uh, but possible, although that's within the realms of bias. And then vitamin C has about a similar benefit uh, for, for reducing the duration of respiratory infections. But it, you know, if you believe all the data, and it's probably highly biased to be just the positive studies, uh, you gain about four hours less of a cold uh, say vitamin D. So vitamin, sorry, vitamin C. And we've done a massive study uh, using the Zoe app on vitamin C and zinc and has absolutely zero effect in one and a half million people on their risk of COVID. So, um, and that people have spent billions, you know, on the hope that it, it does help them. So. Uh, yeah, I just so wish people would, would spend that money on food rather than on those those supplements. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. definitely wanted to dive into, uh, I guess you talk about the Zoe app and, and that in just a moment. Just a couple of last things just to wrap up on the food side is <clears throat> specifically on the supplements. So one of the rule of thumbs I tend to live by and welcome uh, your, your either acknowledgement that this is kind of a good rule of thumb or not, but is as it relates to supplements is you're, I wouldn't, I don't personally trust the, what you see in the mass market, the main street shops. If you're going to really want to get a high quality supplement, go to a high quality specialty store and find, get, you know, get some recommendations on companies that, that aren't just mass producing it in these giant factories, but that have some more rigor to them. Is that, is that a good rule of thumb to, to go by? Yeah. And I think that's generally true for most of these, these products, um, as well as it is with, you know, foods, if you want to know the origin of your meat for example or your you know you want the best cheese you've got to go to a specialist and, and, yes. and get to know the origin of where these things come from so if you get your vitamins you, you ought to know you know which country makes it and uh you know how do you know it's good and uh and the same is true of probiotics you know where there's huge fraud as well uh because it, it's largely unregulated and people need to start inquiring more about these things as they as they as they gain the knowledge so yes i'm not saying that none of these work and of course you know uh, b12 is really important for vegans and vegetarians so clearly there are some vitamins that do work uh, i'm just conscious of the the billions people are spending on stuff that uh really doesn't work just because they're driven by the advertising of those companies that are acting now like the food companies or the pharmaceutical companies of the past and shouldn't be regarded as the good guys. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So at the risk of sounding like, you know, doomsday as it relates to uh, the, the, what's happening in our food industry, um, you, in your book, you talk about, you know, the tipping point that you've kind of seen. And I guess I guess the question would be is what, what gives you hope, Tim, of, of where, you know, what are the where are these islands of sanity or some real clarity coming about the, the way the way forward? I know you've got personal involvement in Zoe. I'd love to hear more about that. But overall, we'll start with the bigger picture. What's giving you hope about 
about what is possible going forward to make sure that people are both informed and, and really building the wealth and the, uh, sorry, the, the health and the wellness that they deserve. I think it, it's, it's speaking to other nutrition experts and, and going to uh, nutrition conferences around the world, um, realizing that there, there is a bit of a change. You know, I think people realize finally that we've got stuff wrong and that following the old mantra of you know, calories and fat as being the, uh, the key things we need to sort out uh, is changing. I think the experts are realizing we need to talk about food as a whole rather than as breaking it down into these uh, reductionist uh, simple messages. Um, so that, that gives me hope. Plus, I think a lot of the technology that's coming, um, working out, there's this stuff called metabolomics where, you know, a bit like genetic sequencing, you can break down any food into its chemical metabolites. And we realize there are, you know, 30,000 uh, chemicals in the food that we eat regularly, uh, you know, 600 chemicals in a banana. So it's not like a banana is just carbs or, um, you know, there's, there's no such thing as, you know, just one thing you should talk about in a food. It's how do we start interacting? And then, you, then you've got the gut microbiome. And I think that's really interesting people in nutrition um, because that's so complex in itself. And, the, and we have these blood metabolites in our body that are going around doing all the stuff like lighting up our brain, et cetera. So I think we are seeing a change here that makes me optimistic that the future is gonna be using this stuff, the fact that we can monitor our foods now, we've got things like glucose monitors that people can stick on in real time, see how food is affecting them. You know, hopefully we'll soon have this for fat levels. Um, we can pick up inflammation in our blood. And of course we've got the gut microbes as a sort of uh, marker of what's going on inside our guts that we didn't have before. So suddenly we've got all these tools plus big computing that are enable us to re rethink nutrition in a way that uh, will really help us going forward. Uh, and so we can forget this old style thinking uh, for good. So I, despite all the <laughs> negative things I'm saying about what's going on, I actually am quite positive uh, about the future. And it, but it does depend on educating, or in some cases, re-educating lots of people yeah. uh, about you know how exciting the science of food is, rather than it being the most boring topic in the world. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's that's what we need to do. We need to get you know schools interested, teachers, kids, everyone. Everyone needs to be a food expert. But I think once you get into it uh, and don't just take it for granted, and you know um, we stop people just picking up a packet, stick it in the microwave, and uh, and eating it, then you know. We, we can do great, great things. So I am broadly optimistic uh, that with a, a bottom-up approach, we can change, uh, change the stuff we're eating, even if it's still too tough at the top because of the power of the food industry. Yeah. Well, I appreciate people not only like you, but, but your peers who um, are bringing a more rigorous science to it. But also the, you know, the advances and the and part of the exciting frontier is uh, not just the, the medical scientists, but the technology scientists and what artificial intelligence, intelligence brings. And, and especially in the, in the spirit of one of your core messages of it's, food is personalized. That's why these mass 
diets and mass uh, trends don't work for everybody because it's not right for them. Tell us about Zoe and, and what that is and how it works and how people might get involved. Yeah, so Zoe's a, a data science company that's devoted itself to personalized nutrition and is based in Boston and London. And uh, people can uh, start buying the product now uh, through, through its website at joinzoe.com. But it, it all started about three and a half years ago um, when two entrepreneurs came to see me uh, give, when I was giving a talk in London and they'd be, worked in the internet and they said, this perfect opportunity to combine artificial intelligence with this new understanding of nutrition and put into practice. And they went away and uh, I didn't believe them, but they went away and raised millions and came back to me a few weeks later and said, okay, we're gonna start this. Uh, and so they basically, uh, this, the Zoe paid for this huge study called the PREDICT study where uh, 2000 people were given identical foods in the US and the UK, uh, identical muffins, identical milkshakes, given all the technology, glucose monitors, finger prick testing, um, stool sampling, uh, a whole day in the hospital, and logged their meals for two weeks. And so we had unprecedented data, uh, you know, two million glucose readings. We had, you know, given out 50,000 muffins and um, first time ever people just, we were able to see that when you give people identical food, there was an eight to 10 fold difference in people's response, even normal people. So that was mind blowing really, because we just said, well, there might be a small range around the average, but eight, eight nine fold, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so no two people reacted the same to, any, to an identical food, even identical twins. So you give identical twins the same meal, they reacted differently metabolically when you frame. And we know that these, these sugar peaks were crucial. Um, sugar peaks and fat peaks at six hours were crucial to how you metabolize the food, how hungry you were, uh, and eventually, uh, you know, after a few months, how much weight you were gonna gain, you were gonna gain. So if you could start matching that with the gut microbes, you could start giving people personalized advice. And that's basically after collecting data for, for three years, put it in, all together into an app. And we now have a commercial product uh, that allows people to do these experiments themselves in a shortened form uh, in about five days. And uh, by knowing about the sugars, the fats and your gut microbes, come up with a score for every potential food you might wanna eat. Uh, with a predictability around 80% about how you're gonna to respond to that. So the idea is you, you change the way you eat, not talking about calories, not talking about avoiding fats, just based around your own data about how you respond to food in a systematic way compared to these thousands of others to say, okay, you should be eating more of this, less of that. Nothing's off the table. You know, you can still drink a Coke if you want to every now and again. Um, we're not trying to deprive people. The idea is to actually give people more choice yes. and suggest more things they eat that are, are good for, you know, try and get that perfect balance between good for your, your sugar levels, your fat levels and your gut health. And that's the, that's the sort of holy triad here, a holistic way of, of thinking about this. So 
it's sustainable for years, not, not just the six week uh, miracle diet that always rebounds yeah. and smacks you back in the face. And, you know, all the other diets that basically restrict what you eat rather than actually enhance it by giving you new ideas. So, so far it seems to be working very well. Most people are losing, uh, you know, four to six pounds on it. Uh, but more importantly, they, they feel happy about it, but they feel empowered that they now understand how their body works. Yes. And, and that gives them the power to go and choose food without being told by someone else do this, do that diet, this is for you, you must do keto, you must do gluten-free, you must do wheat-free, you know, uh, all these kind of dogmas that uh, many have entered, you know, disappointment and failure in many people because it just doesn't suit them. And, and people can then use it as a tool, uh, like we all use our, you know, uh, our phones every day, not really understanding all the technology that goes behind it, Yes. the AI and stuff. And so, plan. is this um, for someone who's interested? And so, is it available for anybody? Can anyone sign up, or you, or are there a certain uh, profile of people that are better suited for it? No, at the moment. Um, so we we're still ongoing the research program, but this is available commercially now. Uh, and so, if 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 you sign up, literally anyone can do it. Whether they're just interested to you know biohackers who are interested in just finding out about their body, people that have uh, some dietary problems, people with health issues, or um, you know, people who are overweight, or you know, a lot of people are just generally interested in food and want to understand how their body reacts to it. You know, and with extra stuff we're getting, you know, about the role of exercise and sleep and um, time of day. All this stuff we're collecting this is fascinating. It's not just what you eat, it's also how you eat. You know, and we, again, comes back to these dogmas. We're told to eat breakfast, we're told to eat five other times a day. You know, some people are morning people, some people are evening people. And as we get more data, we can start to really feed all this stuff back as well. And, yes. uh, and challenge some of these, these ideas that uh, have, you know, in, for us as individuals been very, very wrong. And so it's, it's a very exciting time because you know people doing this will actually be contributing to the research as well as understanding about themselves. So I, th I think it uh, it's it's got potential to really take off in a in, in a huge way because people will use it differently. You know, you're not we're not telling people you got to do this or you must lose X weight or you you know people can then start to self-experiment and I think that's that's what we want people to do is to think about food in a different way. You know, when you eat a meal, are you thinking about your sugar spikes? Are you thinking about, is it good for your gut microbes? You know, are you think, most people don't think six hours later, this is gonna give me a triglyceride peak, you know? Yes, but, yes. Um, you got an app that just tells you, you know, these are the things, you know, don't worry about it, but do try and find new stuff, eat more diversely, you know, eat for your gut microbes, and that's a pretty good rule generally. But on top of that, eat for yourself. And, uh, you know, what's the best, you know, eat for your perfect metabolism. And uh, yeah, well, I think that's such an important message. And um, I really appreciate not only the work that you're doing, but your, your, your leadership in this space. And 
because um, we need leaders like you to not only bring the truth, but also bring a pathway forward. And before I ask the, the final question, Tim, where can people learn more about you or, or get in touch with you? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Tim Spector. Um, and I do have a, a website, uh, tim.spector. Uh, uh, timspector.co.uk um, but and the information about Zoe um, which uh, you know, I'm clearly involved with is on joinzoe.com and that's where as well as all the information um, uh, about signing up you can also get general background information about personalized nutrition if you're just curious Great. Anyway, so they're, they're the real sources of, of information Great. Well, we'll make sure we have all those links in our in our show notes. My, my my final question for you, Tim, for your time on the Ignition Show, what is it that you hope to ignite in the world? I'd love to ignite everyone into the excitement of personalized nutrition, so that everyone can be empowered to, you know, make the best of their bodies um, by picking the best foods and and decide the best times to eat it whilst also getting even more pleasure from the foods that we eat and really enjoy that experience. So that, they're, they're, they're minds. Personalized nutrition that emphasizes the fantastic pleasure we get from food and yes. uh, reverse some of the things that have been going wrong. For the last yes, especially in this time of, <clears throat> of COVID where we, we may not always have access to our restaurants and uh, the cultural aspect of that, that, uh, even more Absolutely, so. Absolutely, yeah, and realize that food really is the best medicine. And, you know, now we have the tools to tell you which one, you know, to take on a daily basis. So uh, yeah. it's, a, it's an exciting time. So, um, and, you know, I'm eating better than ever and I'm always experimenting and I want everyone to do the same. Great. Well, I, I appreciate uh, your message, uh, Tim, and certainly the, the, uh, the Herculean effort you've done to put, it, put together the book Spoon Fed. Uh, again, we'll have all the links in our show notes, but I encourage anyone who's listening to this to, to grab themselves a copy because it is, it is jam-packed with some truths that we all need to understand. And, um, and we'll get some people up on the, on the Zoe app as well and uh, to help really spread the word on that. So thanks very much for your time, Tim. I appreciate you very much. It's been great. Thanks. That was Dr. Tim Spector, author of Spoonfed. Why nearly everything we've been told about food is wrong. You can find all the links in our show notes. We want you to get the most of the time you've invested listening here. The show is only valuable if you apply what you learn. And most learning, as we know, is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com connect and let us know what struck you. What was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today? You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments or follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. It's a shorter follow-up episode where we, my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We read every single review and comment that comes through Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and our website, and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember... Whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.